You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia discuss the primary care issues that are on their mind and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about young men's health. Joining me is Dr. Zachary McLean from the Division of Adolescent Medicine, also at CHOP. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So let's just start with why is this an important topic on its own? What's unique about young men's health? Yeah, I think before starting with young men, you have to start with teenagers in general. And I think teenagers are, you know, wrongfully are wrongly framed um, as being, you know, tough to talk to, hard to deal with, um, you know, hormone-fueled little monsters. Right. Um, but for those of us who take care of teenagers, uh, you know, day in and day out, we know actually the exact opposite is true, and that um, those of us that serve youth, when we, you know, close our, our office door or close the, the clinic door and and listen to them and hear them, they actually show us how wonderful they are. Um, and they're quite easy to talk to. Mm-hmm. So boys in particular um, are wrongly framed as um, unemotional, uncaring, tough, silent, right. kind of ready for sex little monsters. And that's how they're portrayed in the media. That's, uh, you know, portrayed as risky and risk takers. Right. Um, but, but I know from my experience of taking care of young men that, like I was saying about teenagers in general, the opposite is true. And young men, when I show them that, you know, being masculine is about listening and about caring and about being emotive, and I shut that clinic door, they, they show that to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's important because young men um, don't engage in care as frequently as young women. Right, we don't see them in clinic as often. Exactly. So when we do have them there, we want to make the time as valuable as possible. Right, great. And establish that rapport so hopefully they come, come back. back. Yeah, right. exactly. So in terms of concerns that my adolescent male patients bring to me, one of the things they often ask is whether or not their penis size is normal. And I know this is something that sometimes they're nervous about asking. So help me better inform myself so that I can reassure them what is normal. Yeah. Um, I, it, a lot of young men will ask this question. I think um, usually at... Um, after the GU or genitourinary exam, that's when I'll say, do you have anything qu- any questions about anything below the belt? Right. Everything looks really normal, but let me know if there's anything in particular you're worried about. That can help open up the conversation. So yeah. the two things I'm doing there is one, normalizing that what I saw looked normal, right. as long as it did look normal. Sure. And then... Um, also opening up the conversation to see if there are any more questions. A really good strategy for addressing um, teen concerns about um, sex or about penile concerns is to normalize their questions. And I do that by saying, wow, so many guys have asked me this question. Um, And then that makes it so they're not worried about um, anything or, or talking up 
talking about more things related to their their sexual or penile function. Mm -hmm. uh, the range of normal is huge, so yeah. that's why we really can say um, it's normal and it's, that's true. Right. So the average um, flaccid penile length is about one to four inches. Okay. The average erect length is five to seven inches, and there's no predictable relationship between flaccid and erect lengths. Mean testicular volume is 10 mLs, but can really range anywhere from 8 to 20 mm -hmm. mLs as well. So there's a lot of variability, so we can reassure most of our patients that they are normal. Exactly. Right. And normalization for a teen male who's worried about something is a very powerful tool. Mm -hmm. On that note, uh, another concern that some teens have is their sexual function and are they performing normally? So how common is it for teens to have sexual dysfunction? And since our patients might not bring that up with us, how can we approach that to help elicit that history? Yeah. Sexual dysfunction in healthy teenage boys is uncommon. Mm -hmm. So usually we as providers can be reassured that most of the time everything's going to be normal. Right. You know, when I ask general questions about sexual function, uh, when I'm asking the teenager, you know, one-on-one -on -one about relationships is usually where I start. Mm -hmm. So I think it's very important to know that teenagers don't want us as providers to assume that they're having sex. Mm -hmm. um, if, so we don't perceive them just as risky, right. um, but instead focus on their strengths. So when I'm asking about sex, I always start with romance and relationships. Mm -hmm. So I usually, the first question I ask is, is there any romance in your life? Mm -hmm. um, to yeah. see what they, what they, how they respond. You know, it, it's very important to keep these conversations gender neutral, mm -hmm. um, sexual orientation neutral, you know, so you're, right. you're considering same sex relationships. So I say, do you have any romance in your life? And then if they respond, oh yeah, I have a girlfriend or a boyfriend, right. then I'm able to say, oh, great, tell me about that person. Right. So I still don't start with sex yet. Mm -hmm. right. So tell me about that person. Um, what are they like? What's their name? I ask for their name just mm -hmm. so it, it shows true interest on my part. Right. Um, once they've told me what their name is, um, I ask if they like them. Do they love them? Mm -hmm. You know, it's kind of, you can get kind of a sweet response yeah. <laughs> from young men when you ask if they love uh, their girlfriend or boyfriend. Yeah. Uh, then I dive into physical. Mm -hmm. So I say, are you physical with that person? Mm -hmm. Um, do you guys kiss? Do you hold hands? Do you hug? So I start low right. and then build up mm -hmm. to actual sex. Yeah. And um, we'll say, um, are you guys sexually active? Tell me the types of sex do you have. If they are unclear about the types of sex, I ask specifically oral sex, vaginal sex, anal sex. Mm -hmm. And I just ask really straightforwardly. I think, think teenagers are sometimes you try to dance around these topics because we're uncomfortable talking about them and the teenagers can see right through that. Right. So that's why I'm just very direct in the questions and they appreciate that. They appreciate directness. Mm -hmm. So um, when asking about sex, that's when I'll ask about sexual function. Um, so I'll just say, do you have any concerns about sexual function or performance? For example, like, do you get normal erections? Right. Um, do you um, ejaculate normally or feel like you're time to ejaculation is normal. Do you masturbate? 
Um, do you have any issues with, with sex when you're having sex with your partner? Right. And most of the time the answer is everything's normal. Of very few times, I want to say, you know, one to 2% of the times um, a teenager has concerns, I, the first thing I do is just normalize. So I say, wow, so many guys that I see come in with that issue. Right. A lot of times for young men, it's premature ejaculation, or they feel like um, they're worried about uh, not having a strong enough erection. Mm-hmm. So, the, um, so those two concerns, usually if I normalize it for them and say, wow, so many guys ask me that question, it goes away. Right. The problem Just goes the away. anxiety about the issue makes the issue worse. Exactly. Yeah. So Great. I like that you talk about starting kind of innocently mm-hmm. with relationships. I remember being a trainee and just jumping right in with like, are you having sex? Mm-hmm. And then a young adolescent saying like, what's sex? And I was like, oh no, we went <laughs> I went way too far. <laughs> right. I went right to the exactly. deep end. I should have started yeah. um, slower and kind of built up to that talk. So yeah. it's a good point. Yeah. And what a message to give a teenager to say, actually what I care about most for you in your life are the relationships that you're making and that you're in a healthy relationship, not that I'm worthy of gonorrhea and chlamydia. Right. It's like really like, let's start there. Let's start trusting youth and making healthy relationships and then they'll make healthy relationships. That's a great point. So when we are examining patients in routine preventative care visits, should we be doing testicular exams and should we be teaching our patients to do self-exams? Uh, that's a great question. Um, we should routinely do testicular exams on adolescent young men uh, for a couple reasons. The American Academy of Pediatrics, Bright Futures, and the Society of Adolescent Health and Medicine recommend doing the GU exam as part of a comprehensive physical exam for a young man um, yearly mm-hmm. or annually. Right. We know in Pennsylvania, um, which I'm sure is the same in other states, that it's very, uh, it's also critical to the sports physical. We have to confirm that there's no hernia. We have to confirm that they have both testicles. Um, Those are two little check boxes in the the sports physical. So those are definitely um, moments where we need to do that. As teenagers, young men are going through puberty, it's also very important to assess their pubertal stage and make sure that that's progressing normally at the right pace and tempo. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's another reason to do it. And then it should also be critical in any concern. You know, if, if a patient's coming in with some sort of symptom or a concern in the GU exam, we always have to confirm that it's normal. Yeah. We do not need to teach um, youth to do the testicular self-exam for the purposes of cancer screening. Um, our exam is enough. Right. Obviously, we can say, if you ever have any concern about something in, um, with your testicles, you just need to come in and let us know and open up that line of communication. But the USPSTF, the United States Preventive Services Task Force um, has recommended against screening uh, and actually gave it a grade D, um, really because there's a low prevalence of testicular cancer, there's limited accuracy of the screening tests, there's no evidence for the benefits of screening, 
And in fact, there are a lot of harms. There can be false positives, uh, false positive results, anxiety because of that, and then also any harm from unnecessary procedures. And I think my anecdotal experience with teen guys, if you were to teach them to do the self-exam in a regular, like monthly way after the shower, you need to check this. A lot of times they're going to feel their epididymis and they're going to be like, what is this thing? Yeah, um, they're going to be worried about something, thinking they have cancer that's a normal part of their body. Exactly. Other thing to consider, although testicular neoplasms are the most common solid malignancy affecting males 15 to 35, it really only accounts for 1% of all cancers of men. So the overall prevalence is low. Still uncommon, right? So another thing that my patients worry about is pubertal gynecomastia. So why does this happen? So pubertal gynecomastia is just breast development in the pubertal male. Uh, It really happens, the bottom line is it happens because during puberty, the serum concentration of estradiol or estrogen rises to adult levels before testosterone. It's incredibly common. It affects about 60 to 70 percent of adolescent boys, uh, but the diagnosis is really done with history and physical, and the there's no treatment necessary. Most of this resolves when the testosterone levels reach adult levels. Um, how can I reassure myself that it's not pathological? The features that are reassuring um, are, there are four typical features. One is it's central, so just, you know, sub-areolar. It's not, Mm -hmm. like, off to the side. Right. It's symmetric, so not one side is more um, pronounced than the other, usually. Okay. It's bilateral, so it's both sides. And it's tender early on in its course. Mm -hmm. But it gets better. Most times it resolves in six months to two years. There is a subset of adolescent males who... It persists beyond two years, and that's about 25% of the time. Really helpful information for us to reassure them that this is normal, similar to the gynecomastia that we see sometimes in infancy. Mm-hmm. Right? Exactly. Okay. There, uh, gynecomastia has three, it's trimodal, so mm-hmm. uh, infancy or neonatal, then pubertal males, and then elderly when testosterone levels drop. Mm-hmm. So if I'm seeing a teen with scrotal pain and swelling, what things should be in my differential diagnosis, and how do I narrow that down? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, there are a lot of things, um, <laughs> for sure. I think one of, the, one of the easiest, incredibly common, and very important thing to catch is epididymitis. Mm-hmm. So... There are about 600,000 cases of epididymitis every year, most commonly from um, sexual activity caused by the two most common organisms are gonorrhea and chlamydia. So that's something you really want to catch. Mm -hmm. Um, You, the, the history, you know, you can do history and get that the concerns that you had mentioned. Mm -hmm. And then on physical exam, the key is really palpating or feeling the epididymis. And if there's pain um, there, that's when you want to treat. So more kind of localized pain in that area. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And it is painful. So Mm -hmm. you're not going to miss epididymitis. Um, So acute infectious epididymitis is incredibly painful. Mm -hmm. Um, The youth will describe it as, you know, happening, you know, it happened over the course of a few days. Um, Most of the time it's acute, but sometimes it can be a dull ache. It's painful with movements and standing, and it's relieved with a kind of scrotal elevation. Mm -hmm. Um, 
the CDC has guidelines on treatment. It's an IM ceftriaxone and 10 days of doxycycline. Other common things, uh, a dull ache that a patient comes in feeling, and if you're doing an exam, a varicocele is really common. Mm -hmm. That's a dilation of the pampiniform plexus or the venous plexus that feeds the testis. Um, and it's more commonly on the left than the right. Okay. Um, it's really, a lot of it's due to, to gravity. So the on the left side, the left spermatic vein drains at a right angle into the left renal vein. So there's a nice 90 degree angle and it's just like mm. directly north-south. So right. that's, that's why gravity is gonna cause that, that dilation. And then on the right side, where is that vein coming from? So on the right side, the right spermatic vein drains directly into the IVC in a more uh, inferior vena cava at a more obtuse angle. So that's mm -hmm. less likely to happen. And right is usually always pathologic. So if there's if if there's varicocele on the right, that's when you want to worry about an abdominal tumor. So left-sided varicocele, okay. Right side, we should be concerned. Exactly. Got it. Um, and then the other, I would say, main problem with young men uh, with a, a scrotal complaint would be an inguinal hernia. Um, it's just a, a bulge in the groin. Patients will often describe a heaviness or just some discomfort. And for the examination, you um, will usually be sitting while the patient's standing. Um, you take a finger and uh, push it into the scrotum towards the pubic tubercle mm -hmm. and ask them to cough or valsalva. You feel a silky impulse on your finger. Um, the treatment is really just watchful waiting. Um, so you just continue to monitor it. I usually counsel about, you know, um, an incarcer incarcerated hernia. So or they something. know what to look so out for. So they know what to look for, um, for sure. But really most Patients don't need surgery until, you know, much, much later. So there's obviously many other things that can cause pain and swelling, but it's good to review some of those more common things. Um, when we're talking with our teenagers in clinic, what components of sexual and reproductive health should we be discussing at routine preventative care visits? That's a great question. Men's sexual and reproductive health includes much more than just prevention and control of sexually transmitted d diseases or infections. Right. I think it's important to assess a reproductive aged men's willing to talk about sexual and reproductive health and really promote sexual health and development uh, beyond just genital health. Um, we should talk about healthy relationships, like I was mentioning earlier. Um, if they're in um, a heterosexual relationship, preventing unintended pregnancies, or mm -hmm. if they have sex with women, preventing unintended pregnancies. I often talk about fatherhood or, or desire to, to be a father with both my um, gay and straight men. Mm -hmm. uh, other things that I consider part of sexual and reproductive health are genital health, skin health, acne, and like we were talking earlier about sexual function. Mm -hmm. okay. I think it's really important, like you mentioned, to talk about things like pregnancy uh, with our male patients just as much as we do with our female mm -hmm. patients because I think that sometimes we forget that piece. Yeah, and a very important person in mm -hmm. preventing unintended pregnancies exactly. is uh, the young man. 
So in closing, can you give us your top three take-home points that we as primary care pediatricians should be thinking about in taking care of our young male patients? I think the three takeaway points would be, one, young men want to be respected. And as providers, it's very important to talk with them and not at them. Right. So um, understanding that they've you know, been wrongly framed as you know, silent and uncaring and ready for sex. And actually, it's the opposite that's true and that it's so important to treat them with respect, to listen to them, to hear them, and to show them that um, you know, being a, a solid young man is about caring, caring for people, caring for yourself. Right. I think secondly, uh, normalization, normalization, normalization. Mm -hmm. So anytime a teen boy comes in with any concern, um, especially when it's related to sexual function mm -hmm. um, or any their body. their body or complaint under the belt to just say, wow, so many guys come in with this question. Mm -hmm. That normalization is one of the most powerful things that I do um, with young men. And I think that a lot of times a young man comes in with a complaint, I normalize it, and I never see them again. Right. Even though like I've scheduled a follow-up appointment, they don't show up because right. they're cured. So normalization is a really powerful and tool. And for those of us who do continue seeing them in primary care routinely, the fact that we've normalized one of their concerns might make them more willing to tell us future concerns because they know that they, they feel that these are normal things to bring up now. Yeah, absolutely. I think third, with all young men, it's super important to um, to keep things neutral when talking about sex, um, gender neutral, sexual orientation neutral. I take care of a lot of young men, but um, a lot of my work is also in with trans youth and with um, LGBT youth in general. And so, uh, a lot, being a safe space for a young uh, gay man or trans man um, can talk about that part of them. Mm -hmm. It can be life-saving. Right. Great. Well, there is a lot more that we could talk about with you, but tell us where we could find you at CHOP and where we could refer patients to. Yeah. Um, I'm in the Adolescent Medicine Division at CHOP. Within the division, we have a Center for Young Men's Health. So you can call our clinic, which would be 215 590-3537. Great. Well, thank you so much. This has been really interesting. And we will look for your clinic next time we have young men that need referral. Um, but I feel that we are all more confident in taking care of them in primary care too. So thank you. Great. Thanks for having me. for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcasts for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.